0: Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. I'm your host, Brenna Miller.
1: And I'm your other host, Jessica Venus Nelson. This year, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, the nation's first major memorial to the victims of lynching, opened in Montgomery, Alabama. Despite being a crime of public spectacle, an intensely visible crime meant to instill fear, lynching has been met with largely public silence, and relative invisibility of the over 4,000 African Americans lynched in this country's history.
0: The opening of the lynching memorial has coincided with increasing controversy concerning Confederate monuments around the country and the messages they send. For example, Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey did not attend the opening of the lynching memorial and instead released a video touting her efforts to preserve Confederate monuments. What do all these monuments really represent? What's at stake in the battle over them? And what do the competing narratives of history that these controversies speak to reveal about the deeper issues facing the U.S. today?
1: Today, we've invited three scholars to discuss the debate over Confederate monuments and the new lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. In the studio with us, we have Dr. Hassan Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The
0: Ohio State University, where he focuses on civil rights and black power movements.
2: Great to be with you.
0: On the phone, we have Dr. Sarah Gardner, a distinguished professor of history at Mercer University, where she focuses on 19th century America, the Civil War, Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow, and the Civil War and print culture.
1: Hey, it's good to be here. Also on the phone, we have Dr. Stephen Kahn, the W.E. Smith Professor of History from Miami University, where he focuses on American cultural and intellectual
0: history. Hi, guys. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. So over the last year the controversy over Confederate monuments has cropped up again and again. Can you briefly explain what the controversy is about with respect to these monuments and why has it become so intense recently?
3: The reason that these controversies have popped up is at at this particular moment is that I think for lots of Americans those symbols those monuments have become a kind of wallpaper that nobody really noticed and because of a whole set of contemporary political developments not the least of which is the resurgent white nationalism that we've seen really starting i think and uh, it became much more visible starting in about 2015 other people have pointed out these symbols which maybe we all walked past all these years and and didn't quite didn't quite pay attention to so they so they became a focal point for debate controversy and, in some cases, violence, uh, because people finally started to point out that they were there in the first place.
2: Well, I, I would just have to offer a friendly amendment to that. Yeah. You look at South Carolina, for example. Uh, the NAACP had a ongoing boycott over a decade or so because of the Confederate flag in the state uh, official uh, things, if you will, within South Carolina. So uh, the Friendly Amendment is, is uh, this has been on the radar of Black folk for quite some time uh, in sure. in an organized fashion, uh, but even just in sort of the casual day to day occurrences. And so, in in recent years, I think perhaps following. Most publicly, the shooting at the AME Church, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, reached a different level of public consciousness, public notice, particularly in, in mainstream media and in white eyes. Uh, but for African-Americans, there have always been many people who have said, listen, this is this is an issue, this is a problem, something needs to be done about it.
4: Yeah, and I, th- I think I would just add to that that in the wake of recent shootings, um, those who wish to preserve Confederate monuments have doubled down. Uh, with the rise of Black Lives Matter and other organizations that do bring attention to what might seem invisible to some folks, but is painfully obvious to others.
1: So what do these monuments and other forms of public commemoration of the Confederacy then represent today?
4: Well, I'll say that they represent the same thing that they've always represented, and that's white supremacy, right? I mean, they went up at a time when Reconstruction era and coalition governments were overturned or later when civil rights organizations and policy threatened Jim Crow. Monuments are for the living, not for the dead, and the goals and desires of societies that erect them. So the message seems pretty clear to me what they represent.
3: You know, for me at a a much more abstract level, they represent one of the few things I think I've really learned about history, and that is that losers have much longer memories than winners. And To be on the losing side, not only of a war, but indeed of history itself, is something that white Southerners in particular have had to live with now for, well, 150 years. And I think that those monuments at some level are a testament to just how long and how bitter those memories are and how they hang on even into the present.
2: But to a certain extent, yes, they lost the war, but they won the Reconstruction. Uh, And when we we look at Mm -hmm. when we look at when these monuments go up, particularly that first real, that first big wave after 1895, we're talking about the height of Jim Crow. I mean, they were winning that. It was reinforcing this notion that we are on top and we will continue to be on top. And I think it was more just using. I mean, certainly there's some lost cause in there. You know, there's some psychological Freudian things that they got going on with the Civil War, but it provides a sort of convenient way of promoting white supremacy and the idea uh, of this is the ultimate objective to have black people undertow. And I think that really helps to fuel the reasoning behind it, even during a time when they are really on top. That bottom rail, is yeah. like to say, the bottom yep. rail is on top. right?
4: I absolutely agree. I mean, what else does a monument of a white guy holding a gun placed in neighborhoods where Reconstruction governments were overturned? say to people as they walk down the street. They assert authority, right? That we are the ones on top.
3: So, so maybe we could think about this as having two phases, that the post-Reconstruction era, uh, which was a lot of equestrian statues and you know, a lot of monuments in the town square, uh, represented the triumph of the Jim Crow order but by the time the flag in particular shows up again as a symbol, Jim Crow is under attack. It's that post war civil rights era when the, when the order of segregation is now under national scrutiny and that's when in sort of round 2 people start waving these flags more and more energetically i think that's actually when the flag goes up on the state capital in a lot of those southern states is in the 50s and 60s you know mm-hmm. they bring they finish the stone mountain memorial <laughs> i think in the 1960s
2: you're right. The part two, I think, is important. But the, th- that moment, so Georgia, for example, redesigns its state flag in 19- 1954 or 1955 in direct response mm-hmm. to exactly what you're talking about, the Brown decision. Yep. But schools hadn't been desegregated. So it's not like they had right. actually lost anything yet. So no, it no, was no, the, right, the right, perception right. of the coming assault. Right. So it was preparing the defense, rallying the troops, but they hadn't actually yep. lost anything yet.
0: When were most of the Confederate monuments built, who sponsored them, and what messages were they intend to send when they were constructed?
4: Most of the monuments went up um, as uh, Reconstruction-era governments collapsed, right? So it's going to be different in particular locations, but when the federal government retreated from its commitment to, to Reconstruction, however strong that commitment might have been, um, when local communities, um, either through legal or extra legal means, overturned government and a conservative white majority was voted into office, that's when these monuments begin to go up. So, I'd, you know, it's around the 1880s, 1890s through the early teens um, and early 20s. Uh, the United Daughters of the Confederacy was a huge promoter and sponsor of these Confederate monuments. So these are private organizations, heritage kinds of organizations that sponsored and did fundraising campaigns to collect the money to build these statues.
2: And I think it's important to note that up until very recently nearly all of these are on public property. That's, yep. that's private funds but public property and, and in prominent public places, so literally in the public square outside of county courthouses and the like. So it's not only saying that we are in charge, but we are in charge through these institutions, through the mechanisms of political control. And I think that's critically important to keep in mind. It wasn't just some nice old ladies who thought this might be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it mm-hmm. was the full support of the state apparatus behind it in the society as a whole. And that's why, when we look back at it now, we're not just talking about, hey, it's unfortunate we may disagree, but everybody's entitled to their political opinion. This is, these are state representation.
3: I want to rant a little bit about Stone Mountain. So starting in um, the 1920s, a group of private Georgians uh, raised money to hire uh, Borgland, the sculptor who did Mount Rushmore, to come do the Confederate Mount Rushmore. And it's going to be the three generals on the horseback, and it's the world's largest bas-relief sculpture, et cetera, et cetera. Well... You know, Stone Mountain is where the Klan was resurrected in 1915. So the connection between these monuments and these paramilitary terrorist organizations that are in charge in the South, I, I mean, it's it's as clear as day, really. <laughs> you know, and, and there it is on that site.
2: And as you said earlier, it's, it's not completed in the 20s. It's resumed, right. resumed <laughs> in <laughs> the, the 60s and completed 60s. in the 70s, right? Right, that's
3: right. right. They yeah. run out
2: of money in the right. 20s. And then it's
3: half done. And then all of a sudden, uh, civil rights movement happens.
2: Yeah,
4: it, it's clearly problematic, or at least a significant mm-hmm. portion of the population of Atlanta. It doesn't become sort of a, a public problem in Atlanta, I don't think, until the Olympics, until 1996, when the Olympics, so right. it, when it, the it Olympics becomes... were headed to Atlanta. And then they're like, holy crap, what do we do now when we have this gigantic monument to the <laughs> right supremacy, so right, that, you know, where... Crack and Field was going to be held or whatever it was. It was out at Stone Mountain. So it, only when it becomes a PR concern does it matter.
2: Right. I would just add, while it was certainly not a, a concern as, as, as a possible issue until the Olympics, and you're right, until 1996 right. and the sort of the world is, is looking and what happened to the city too busy to hate, right. it was a big concern for black folk. Steve, as you pointed out, I mean, this is sort of a recreational park, place right. where you could go in summer. Have a picnic. Yeah, have a picnic and splash around a little bit. And yep. the black folk were like, "That's not for us, right?" Like, <laughs> yeah, like right. It was clear. Yep. I mean, so these right. monuments are also not only signaling white supremacy; they're also sort of declarations of of ownership. Right. In these public yep. places, like we own the courthouse, but we also own this yep. public space. Right. And you knew if yep. you were in Georgia and I went to undergrad there in the 90s, like yep. even that late, you just didn't mess with Stone Mountain, Georgia. That was, right. that was white folk territory. That was Klan territory. That was racist territory, like Forsyth County and these other places. So I think that's important in part of the context, too. Right. It's, 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 mm-hmm. it's declaring ownership over these public spaces, declaring them for white people only, whites only. It's really an extension of the sort of Jim Crow mentality into the modern era.
0: So a lot of the conversation surrounding Confederate monuments seems to focus, at least in terms of funding them, around questions of heritage and history. So what role do these ideas play?
3: Let me just sort of pull the lens back a little bit. Anytime you hear the word heritage being used, your antenna should go up. Somebody is trying to pull a historical fast one on you when they substitute the word heritage for the word history. The word heritage, I think, as we use it nowadays, implies always something warm and fuzzy and wonderful, yep. Yep. and it's about yep. folk dancing and different kinds of foods, and it never actually reckons with the realities of history. We're celebrating our heritage, we pretend it's our history, and therefore we don't have to ask any hard questions.
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, heritage is an industry designed to make money in some way and it's designed to foster affinity so the appeal is to the emotion um, not to reason or not to intellect and you know foster warm fuzzy feelings among like-minded people
3: and it's also about ownership Mm -hmm. nobody owns history but you can say routinely well this is my heritage and therefore you can't criticize it because it's mine but it really is a form of intellectual dishonesty. Anytime you see that, way, and you see the bumper sticker, right, heritage, not hate. Well, that's nonsense, right? That's that's a way of of playing fast and loose with the historical uh, realities of things.
2: If, if anything, I, I think it's the the heritage of hate. I mean, white supremacy was the at the center of the Confederacy. You're talking about promoting and preserving the Confederacy and its long legacy, if anything, I I certainly understand the tourism of heritage and and all that. But at its core, we're talking about promoting the core elements of a white supremacist culture. And we want to talk about hoop skirts and magnolias and mint juleps, but it was all the accoutrements of white supremacy. And so it's hate is truly at the center of it all, whether or not we want to pretend or those who want to celebrate it, pretend that it exists or not.
1: Well, so monuments are a big focus of these debates, but are there other sites or symbols that speak to the history of slavery, Jim Crow, and continued inequality that should also be revisited? Public mm-hmm.
4: schools, street names should be part of the of the conversation, right? Why is anyone driving down Robert E. Lee Boulevard?
2: Sure, Dixie Highway, Jefferson Davis Highway,
4: Dixie Highway. You know, Confederate yep. Confederate Avenue.
2: I think it's worth noting too that the schools, uh, uh, Steve, as you pointed out. I mean, it's part of the second wave. So the monuments, we see the birth of the monuments turn in the 20th century, but we see the schools being renamed after Mm -hmm. the Brown decision, right? And then 10 years later, when desegregation in the South actually begins to occur, the rise of private white academies. But then you also have black folk actually entering into white schools. And then you begin to see a big push. See if we can pay for private white schools, public money. But short right. of that, we are going to rename mm-hmm. these schools after these Confederate mm-hmm. Confederate generals. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we right. haven't said part, part of the problem isn't just that it's not just that the Confederacy was about white supremacy and promoting white supremacy. Right. People can dismiss. Well, that's just black people being sensitive. Right. Perhaps. But there were also traitors. Right I mean, yes, they, yes, they, yes, they yes, actually yes, went yes. against they <laughs> tried to break up the <laughs> yeah. union, right I mean yeah. that in and yeah. of itself yeah. right is enough and ought to ought to raise raise flags, if you will, uh, on the issue of should we should we be propagating confederate mythology and the like uh, or or should we be saying, hey, we need to we need to reimagine the reimagining, revision, and actually move mm-hmm. away from the heritage and deal with the actual history
3: you know there, there's a kind of two part success that Southern mythologizers have had uh, one was uh, yeah this had nothing to do with slavery uh, it's it's uh, has nothing to do with race and the second was yeah it wasn't about it, it was about states' rights It wasn't about uh, tearing up the Constitution and being traitorous yeah it's kind of astonishing I, I would add to the schools and the streets especially in places like Mississippi and South Carolina there has been over the last generation or so the development of a tourist industry around those old stately plantation homes. Right. And very few of them, at least to my knowledge, have confronted the question of slavery at all. We've seen this a little bit at Mount Vernon uh, and a little bit at Monticello, but I think the vast majority of these, they may even use the word servants, Rather than yep. slaves, so I think those places continue the the Moonlight and Magnolias version of the Old South that we all pretend is was what the South was really like.
4: Yeah, I think even at Monticello, there's a separate tour. It's not part of yep. the main tour that takes you to the to the slave quarters and and to, and actually and talks about slavery. It's not yeah, part, of, and, part of the main you know, tour.
3: You I don't want to put people down. I you know, but as I said, I think in a lot of these much smaller, less high-profile places you don't see any of this.
4: Right, yeah. There's more concern about getting the China pattern down That's right. That's, which is and, the molding like. And the, and the, and the that's clothing and all accuracy. that. That's right.
2: That, that, that is certainly, I think, an apt description, particularly of the private uh, old antebellum mansions yep. that uh, that mm-hmm. really drive some of these small southern rural counties. But I will add,
3: um, James
2: yeah. Madison's uh, plantation estate just did a new exhibit and went online last year, the mere distinction of Of color that really takes on head-on challenges in a very unvarnished way. Um, Not only the history of slavery at Montpelier—that's his. That's the name of his. A state mm-hmm. of Montpelier, uh, but really the history of slavery in America. I mean, so, you know, the father of the Constitution, you know, has mm-hmm. 100 or so enslaved people his entire mm-hmm. life, never frees a single soul. Uh, but, they, but they there have really done a fantastic job of, of challenging this, the, 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 the normative narrative of slavery in, in American history, in part yeah, by engaging the descendant community of enslaved people there. And one of the reasons why I think they're able to do it there, Madison never had any children. So there's no white descendants. There's no <laughs> yeah. the fight back. Who were so caught right. up, as you saw, with sort of Jefferson and and, yeah. and the yep. Mount Vernon crowd, right? So there was a little bit more space there uh, to really create without having to sort of deal with well that you know a Jefferson would never have, or you know he he never would have yeah. had relations with a Sally Hammond, you know, because I mean, so you don't yeah, have that yeah. sort of cultural right. contemporary baggage. Right. There.
1: What is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Alabama, and what is its purpose?
2: The uh, Equal Justice Initiative, um, Brian Stevenson, the director, longtime director of that, uh, had for two decades or so focused most of his energy around criminal justice and pursuing um, justice for juveniles and those who have been wrongly sentenced to, especially juveniles, to life in prison without the possibility of parole in, in Alabama, in particular. And over the course of his uh, legal career, he realized two things: one. That so much of what was impacting the lives of African-Americans on sort of a daily daily basis intergenerationally was this legacy of uh, trauma connected to a long history of racial violence in the South, of which lynching was the most spectacular, if you will, form, but that this was an extension of the violence that undergird white supremacy and the beginning of uh, or would lead to the kind of violence that undergird Jim Crow and the post-Jim Crow era, uh, which led him to say, listen, we need to have a reconciling. We need to have a moment and a place to think about uh, the long history of racial violence and its meaning and its legacy and the ways in which it, it it continues on today, if there is ever to be any kind of racial reconciliation, not just in a place like Montgomery, the, the capital, the original capital of the Confederacy, but in America as a whole. Uh, And so that was some of the thinking that really went behind the creation of this memorial that marks this 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 period in American history that we are too willing to overlook, to pretend didn't happen, to pretend wasn't celebrated, to pretend wasn't public. Uh, And so it's, it's a powerful memorial. I got to see it as they were building it from a distance. I tried to talk my way in, but couldn't get in. (laughs) i <laughs> um, looking forward to going back to summer to check it out. But by all accounts, it, it truly is powerful. And, and because it causes you to pause and just think, and the way it's done with these, you know, the images are up the, with these uh, heavy sort of metal cylinders, you know, the, the marking every county where a lynching, a known lynching had, had occurred. And you see the scope of it. I mean, at, at its height, two people, two African-Americans being publicly murdered uh, every week. I mean, that's a phenomenal number, a phenomenal rate. And this draws our attention saying, listen, we can't have any reconciliation until you have some truth. And the truth has to begin with the central role of racial terror and violence in our society as it relates to policing the color line.
3: You know, I've written quite a bit publicly about all this Confederate celebration and whatnot. Uh, and, And it's easy to feel discouraged given the the drift of the conversation and and the public discourse and whatnot but this montgomery project we can see that as the latest in a series of institutional developments which i think really are asserting in creative ways that there really is no american history without african-american history and the centrality of the african-american experience to everything that has gone on on this continent since about 1607 so i'm thinking in particular about the Smithsonian's African American History Museum, which opened about two years ago, give or take. I'm thinking as well about the the plantation that has opened as a museum of slavery uh, outside of New Orleans. The uh, where the Whitney was, is that plantation? the Whitney? Yeah, the, the Whitney Plantation. Yeah. 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 I'm thinking even about the, um, the, the site of the first White House uh, at Independence Park in Philadelphia, which has now a small but but extensive discussion of George Washington's slaves, the four slaves he brought with him to Philadelphia when he was president and living in Philadelphia. So, uh, and now maybe there are going to be venues where we can confront these topics and talk about them.
4: Yeah, I think, too, the placement is interesting, not just that that it's in Montgomery, Alabama, for very good reasons, but it overlooks the state capitol. And it's just down the street from the Board of Pearls and Correction. And so a place perhaps where justice may be achieved, not quite achieved, this national memorial can do what what state governments have failed to do.
0: So why does the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Alabama focus specifically on lynching, and what has been the role and function of the historical silence? Surrounding lynching, why has there been so much silence, and is the memorial an explicit effort to break that?
2: I, th- I think part of the, on, on the silence, and, and the silence is very important because the silence is contemporary. During the height of lynching, there was no mm-hmm. silence. I mean, these things mm-hmm. are not only covered mm-hmm. by newspapers, and you had a handful that might have said, you know, towards the end, you know, like, hey, we need to reconsider this, especially you know as we're moving into somewhat modern a modern era, but. Yeah, you know, these things are being advertised, right? This is going to be, you know, there's going to be a Negro barbecue outside of Atlanta, yeah. right? It'll come yep, on yep, down. Yep. There's special trains that are being announced. The, the last major one, Neil um, Claude Neil, I believe, down in Florida, had two or three thousand people who show up. And and you look back at some of these photographs that were taken of, of these events. And then nobody's wearing a hood. Nobody's hiding. In fact, people mm-hmm. are smiling, right? I mean, they are take these white folk are, you know, literally posing for these pictures. So it was very public facing the silence comes later and the silence becomes deafening. In part, there's some shame, there's some guilt, there's some fear on the part of black folk, right? Like, why don't black folk want to talk about this? Because that has a lasting trauma. When you meet the children of people who have been murdered and lynched and they're still with us as adults, Mm -hmm. and they're like, our family never talked about this, right, for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And why? Because that's a trauma that that they are living with. But the ramifications of that are really powerful because when I bring this up to my class, my college students, maybe you would or wouldn't be surprised about how many mm-hmm. don't even know this ever happened, that lynching in America never never occurred, that these spectacle murders, they had never heard about it. right? And so when you present it to them, they're like, oh my goodness, Like, what does it mean not only that it happened, what does it mean that I've never been taught or told about this before?
3: There is some level of shame involved about this individually collectively nationally which i think is part of what reinforces this silence because it it reminds them of all this shameful horrific business
1: i think some of what you're speaking of about the shame and the not wanting to be reminded is bared out in some of the media coverage over the lynching memorial where in every article you find there are these accounts that foreground white is if they have a special voice on the matter, Mm. where they they, they doubt the veracity of the numbers lynched. And they also raise concerns that such history, it stirs up trouble and cause a backlash.
3: There are lots and lots of Americans, I don't even want to put them down for this, who really think the job of history is to make you feel better. It's a therapeutic thing. We're going to feel good about ourselves and our country and that 's not the job of history. the job of mm-hmm. history is to tell the truth about the past as best as we can manage to do it, and that doesn 't necessarily make you feel good about the past or make you feel good about your great great grandfather um, but I think that 's what people want yep. out of history, and that really is that 's where it bleeds into this this notion of heritage, which is supposed to which is a kind of therapeutic thing that just uh, that makes you feel good
4: The backlash you know what it screams to me is that The opponents of the memorial are not at all concerned with forgetting history or with rewriting history that they're because they're more than willing to forget or ignore this part of history. What they're worried about is they can't control this part of the narrative.
2: You know, I find it more than more than a little ironic that that those who have littered the landscape with these
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: participation trophies to the Civil War are the ones who,
3: <laughs> who want
2: to, you know, say, you know, just why can't you forget it? The past is the past, yep. right? So. Yeah, yeah, right. that's right. right. That's right. right.
3: That's not us today. Yep. Yeah. Silence is a kind of amnesia in that sense. And it seems to be important to those people because immediately it becomes personal and defensive. Well, I didn't lynch anybody. Well, mm-hmm. that's certainly not the point.
0: To what extent do these monuments speak to the past versus to more presentist controversies and debate?
3: Yes,
4: I, I yeah. <laughs> 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 mo- mo- monuments but, are for the living, and and the longer a society tolerates these kinds of you know, I will just get Confederate monuments, the longer we countenance their presence in public spaces. Um, or as long as we continue to countenance our presence in public spaces, sends a message that we countenance what they represent ab- about the past, right? That w- that we're saying we're okay with this.
2: And and there's there's been a thread too with these Confederate monuments, right? So, the Confederacy was about white supremacy, white a particular kind of white identity and white nationalism. The monuments, when they're erected, at the you know during the height of Jim Crow, the emergence of Jim Crow. Uh, the revival of the Klan is about white supremacy, a particular kind of white identity and a particular kind of white nationalism. When you get the, the, the renaming of schools and integration of Confederate flags in the 1950s and 1960s in response to civil rights movement, once again, white nationalism, white identity, white supremacy. And even today, when you're talking about removing them and people rallying to their defense, whether mm-hmm. it's in Memphis or New Orleans or in Charlottesville, it's about white nationalism and white identity and, 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 and white supremacy, Perhaps for some, it's, it's, it's um, uh, more clearly articulated, whether it's those who are on the, the white supremacist right or right, however you want to define or name them, or it's slightly, th- slightly more coded uh, when you have the president of the United States talking about there are good people on both sides. And this is about good people, good people. Good people. I mean, it, yeah. but that's the there's a through people. line through it all. It absolutely reflects the contemporary moment, but the contemporary yeah. is connected to the past. And I think that's yeah. that's an important to keep in mind as well,
3: mm-hmm. the way and the way these fights keep recurring, right over uh, at, at at flashpoint moments across the last 150 years, I, I'm struck by something that uh, that that the really wonderful Southern historian Drew Faust wrote years ago uh, about the, about war, and she said that that what war really is ultimately is a narrative. Uh, you need a narrative in order to make sense out of what is otherwise just state sanctioned murder, and. We have, as a nation, you know, a a, a fairly good consensus about the narratives of many of our wars. World War II, the American Revolution. We're pretty ambivalent about the narrative about Vietnam, and I think we have no consensus about the narrative that makes sense out of the Civil War. You know, in fairness, I think think it's not a 50-50 split. I think uh, a majority of Americans understand perfectly well what the civil war was really all about about slavery white supremacy uh, southern aristocracy and everything else uh but what you do have is this you know sort of intractable minority that that you know generations come and go but but it still seems to be there
2: yeah so i don't i don't know i th- i think that there is i i think you're right in that this is about narrative and about the civil war but i don't think it's just a intractable minority that is clinging to this idea mm-hmm. that it was, you know, an unfortunate lost cause. I think that if you ask the majority of students, what is, what was the principal cause of the Civil War? Southern Poverty Law Center just did a report on this, took a survey of 1,000 students, and the vast majority were talking about states' rights. I mean, so okay. whether it's that intractable yeah. minority, they're, they're, yep. they're yep. controlling the narrative. And, and it's, it's confusing because the Civil War itself, right, you know, not only— the, does the South believe in white supremacy, but the North believes in white supremacy, yeah. too? So is this a battle against racism and white supremacy? If you, yeah. No, you can be anti-slavery at one point in the war and still believe in white Sorry. supremacy. So those right. things that we say are sort of absolutes are not, because we're talking about the 19th century, right, in an era where slavery was a national phenomenon, not just a regional or sectional issue. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I guess two things. One is someone should do a study of who goes on all of those plantation tours in Savannah and in Mississippi. And my guess is you're going to have a fair number of Northerners who want to sit on the porch and see the fine china and the hoop skirts. So they're buying into the myth as much as as much as anyone. The second point. Anti-slavery advocates. Many were certainly white supremacists were racist. And that when we sort of untangle that in my class. That's another thing that sort of blows my students' minds. Because for them, it is clear in their heads that abolitionists, anti-slavery advocates had to have some kind of enlightened view about race. And that's patently untrue. And so that it, it makes their
2: heads hurt. Just on this question of how do we reconcile this issue of 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 traitors? And so on the one hand, this isn't about slavery. Right. But on the other hand, it's also framed as as being about black people. Like if it wasn't for black people, there wouldn't have been this civil war. Right. And so if it's just about black people, well, then all can be forgiven. Right. I mean, there's sort of this Mm -hmm. twisted sort of logic on the one hand that you know if if it's about black people then you know it really can't be all that bad but then again it's not about black people it's about it's a, it's the schizophrenia that yep. race causes and race and racism have caused in america where where right. it's, it's it's the logic of the illogical when it suits particular purposes
3: mm-hmm. yeah and and i i would add to that that certainly in the generation after the civil war the republican party banked itself on on waving that traitor flag they were not invoking the civil war because of the glorious emancipation all those republican politicians ran for office against democrats by Mm -hmm. saying you caused the civil war and you are all traitors and that vanished uh by the early 20th century
1: So how do we go about changing this narrative? Do we think things like the lynching memorial and other, say, plantation tours that give a more honest rendering of history will have an impact on the conversation or will it continue to be a more so choose your own adventure type of history? And with that, what do you expect to happen with the challenge, essentially, that the lynching memorial issued to the 800 counties in which mm-hmm. lynchings occurred? Yeah. They, they made duplicate statues for every county to claim and put up in a public space to commemorate those lynchings. What do we expect to happen with these monuments? Will they be claimed? Will more Confederate monuments come down? Will more go up?
4: The one thing about the, you know, the the offer, right, that any county can can claim a a duplicate statue is that the county has to demonstrate that it's made systematic efforts locally to address racial and economic injustice. All right. So you can't the way I understand it, you can't just claim one of these statues. And that's going to be a tough go for some of these counties.
3: I would be very, very surprised if, you know, in the next 10 or 20 years, we see any more Confederate monuments go up. There are going to be a handful of these things that uh, a couple of yahoos put up on their front lawns. But in terms right. of public money, public spaces, and so on, that's we're not going to see that. I think I'm prepared to put five bucks down on that.
2: I think Steve's right. I think that some will stay up. Most will stay up. I think some will continue to come down. I think those that come down will come down in places where you have large black populations, majority of black populations, and you have elected officials who are responsive to them. So not surprisingly, you'll see, you saw it in Memphis, you saw it in New Orleans. Uh, But then, you know, state of Alabama, the state of Tennessee passes the law saying, oh, you can't remove Confederate monuments." I mean, so there are those who are trying to maintain them, certainly not going anywhere in the age or era of Trump. But I also think that there is heightened mobilization around the need to remove these symbols of white supremacy, whether they are physical manifestations or or changing names, because that is an important process of getting the history right. Right. But if we continue to go down this path of ignoring the past then what we're, we're not just rewriting history. We're not even revising history. We're committing educational malpractice because we're not educating our students. We're not educating, uh, the youth. We're not educating the future about what actually happened in the past. And that, and that, that to me is the real, the real tragedy of it all, right? As educators, as teachers, when we, we want to get the history right, we want to get the history correct, but we're also bound, if you will, by the Hippocratic oath, do no harm. And when you're promoting mm-hmm. these lies and these myths, then you're in fact doing harm.
3: I, I also think there is uh, an interesting sidebar question. Um, let's let's pretend for a moment that they that they all come down, that all of these statues get moved off their pedestals and so forth. What do you do with them? And you know, I've been to a couple of places in the Eastern Europe and and the and what used to be the Soviet Union, uh, where all of these, these these statues of Lenin, Marx, uh, you know, Dzerzhinsky, and all these other guys that that all came down in '89 and '91. Um, get moved into public parks, or they get put into cemeteries. It, it, it's an interesting way of reorienting the way you look at these monuments. They're not in the in the central square of the town anymore, but they're over there in that statue park. Um, and sometimes they're they're lying on their side because they didn't feel like putting them back up again. Sometimes people, you know, graffiti them, whatnot. It, you know, what do you do with these things? Are there are there possibilities? Can you use these? Monuments in a productive way, and and I don't know if that's true, but I think it's it's worth thinking about a little
2: bit. No, it is. I always find it ironic. The city of Selma, um, down in Alabama, had for years debated and wrestled with a, a sort of bronze bust statue um, that was in the public square to Nathan Bedford Forrest, Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, mm-hmm. one of the founders of the Klan, and in the end. They wound up having it moved to the cemetery, right? Sort of you know, mm-hmm. cemetery off, still, still in Selma, off the side. But of course, it's a segregated cemetery, right? I mean, so even, even in sort of yep. moving it out of the way and saying, okay, now it's being taken care of by those who were still sort of the sons and daughters of the Confederacy. Now, it still is in this sort of segregated place that is still harkening back to to sort of a Jim Crow era and 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 what white supremacy means not only in life and in death. So cemeteries yep. themselves don't actually represent sort of, hey, let's put. It over there. It, it, yeah. it, it is a good question, right? I mean, you could look, you could melt them down, take a picture, and put it in a museum. Like, look, this was the era. I, I don't really care what yep. you do with them, but they do need to be moved uh, and, and not <laughs> right, kept right, in right, these right. prominent p- public places where they're still right. signaling that white supremacy is is still okay. I think at the heart of this controversy, if you will, surrounding the presence of these monuments and memorials and and the like, is is something as old as the as the nation itself. And that is a deeply rooted belief in white supremacy that manifests itself in many different ways, some explicit, some implicit. And until we come to sort of a public recognition of that and reconcile that white supremacy and democracy cannot fully coexist in a way that is sort of true, although we pretend that it can, then these statues will still be around, these memorials will still be around, and we'll still be debating whether or not they should be there. And even if and when they do come down, we still will not have solved anything. We would just simply have removed from public view sort of these symbols of, a, of an ideology and a belief uh, that is as old as a republic.
1: Well, we'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to our three guests, Hassan Jeffries, Sarah Gardner, and Stephen Kahn.
3: Thanks so much. Thank you. Great,
0: thank you. Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brenda Miller and Jessica Venus Nelson. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website at origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.